You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 54. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host today, Jeb Card. And today we're interviewing David Anderson, Jeb Card's co-editor on their upcoming book, Lost City, Found Pyramid. We talked to David today about a variety of topics, including his recent visit to the Theosophy Society of America's recent convention. Get ready to think critically. You will see are a staple of archaeology, but we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I am here today with Jeb Card. How's it going? It is the beginning of the school year, and that <laughs> is all I will say. Is that is that? Present. No, it's a it's a good thing. I am looking forward to seeing the students. Uh, summer uh, is when we kind of re- retreat and we do things and we 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 construct. And I'm going to be teaching an introduction to archaeology method and theory for the first time in about a year and a half. That's going to be fantastic. So it's 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 a good thing. But it's sort of it's it's coming back. It's coming back from summer. So a little stressful. But in a good way, like in a things need to get done, but they're good things. Not, oh, my God, this is awful. But like, oh, this is really great. But, oh, it's time to like ramp up now. And today we have a special guest with us. It is David Anderson, who is your co-editor in your book, is he not? Yes. uh, David and I edited Lost City Found Pyramid, Understanding Alternative Archaeologies and Pseudoscientific Practices. And it's available on – by the time this is out, it will be available on Amazon. And you have heard a number of the authors in this, a number of the contributors. So people like Stacey Dunn, April Besaw, our co-host Ken Fader, uh, Chris Begley. uh, Have we had any – I think that's – we're going to have James Beale and we'll, we'll talk about that at another time. But yeah, we've been kind of wandering through and I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to bring David on because David's also working with these sorts of topics and he's kind of like working up some ideas and projects and I wanted to talk to him about that. So, hey, David, how's it going? Great. Uh, great to be with both of you guys. Can you tell us I a little second- bit? Oh, sorry. I will second Jeb on the, the whole, it is, you know, the, the school year is about to start, so everything's getting a little twitchy. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what you do and why you're on our show? Sure, sure. So, you know, in that more traditional sense, uh, my background is as a, a Mesoamerican archaeologist. Uh, I've been working in particular in Yucatan, Mexico, uh, since you know I first went down there as an undergrad in 1999. We both went to grad school together at Tulane, which is big on that part of the world. Yes, yeah. yeah. Jeb and I you know, got to know each other in, in good old New Orleans at Tulane University. All the wonderful, fine folks there. Uh, and, uh, you know, and Tulane, to their good credit, uh, God love uh, Will Andrews, our advisor there, um, did their best to beat any of this uh, sort of discussion of pseudo-archaeology out of us because we shouldn't be talking about this stuff. <laughs> and yet we are here. <laughs> here we are. Yes. Uh, Will rolls his eyes every once in a while, but we love it. Uh, well, not as much as he used to. He's kind of seen what we're getting at. That's true. That is very true. But anyway, so uh, you're my archaeologist. Yeah. So I'm my archaeologist, you know, and uh, I particularly uh, work with uh, pre-classic Maya and sort of I am very interested in sociopolitical development. Uh, I, I love chiefdoms as much as it might be an unpopular word. Now, uh, what now? What is what does preclassic mean? And you might rope in that chiefdom thing you just mentioned. Yeah. So, you know, the classic period is when we get to most of the big giant Maya cities that uh, an average person might have seen, or the art that you might have seen before. Uh, but the classic period doesn't really get started until sort of 200 AD and doesn't really get going to about 600 AD. Uh, when you go earlier, we have, you know, things that are, that appear to be Maya as early as a thousand or 1200 BCE. Mm-hmm. And so 
this is, you know, this is a broadly speaking before, you know, 200 AD, we look at it as the pre-classic period. Uh, you could say this is basically the pre-state period. Uh, we don't have complex bureaucratic government fully entrenched yet in the Maya region. Uh, on that very early end and sort of, you know, 1000 BC, all that we have are a few small houses. Uh, but they make pottery that looks a heck of a lot like uh, the Maya people who come along after them. Yeah. And there, uh, there are some places that get kind of complex. I'm thinking like the Mirador Basin. But sure. as, as you say, in a lot of the peninsula, and you work in the northern part. So like you work in Mexico and like the you, in the state of Yucatan. Yeah, no, I, the, I've spent all my time in Yucatan, Mexico, yeah. uh, working um, specifically with middle pre-classic settlement. Uh, so it's like 500 the, BCE, more or less. Yeah, yeah. The, the site I did my dissertation on was called Shtobo, uh, which was one of the largest political centers in the region of, at right about, I would say, 500 BCE. Like pyramids? Uh, it, and, pyramids? Yes. By largest you know, political center, you know, it's still, you know, don't get too carried away with imagination. It was probably about 1,500 to 2,000 people. You know, the site's about a square kilometer, but it has a beautiful plaza at the center with two pyramids that are about eight meters tall. Uh, you know, from that plaza, we have uh, multiple sock bays, which are raised ca causeways or little raised roads that the Maya would build that go directly from the plaza out to uh, other buildings within the site. It's a very well-organized little site. And it has a beautiful ball court uh, right alongside that main plaza. Hey, and, if you got pyramids, I consider that a win. Yeah, no, I mean, this this is a very real Maya site. It looks exactly like what you would expect. It's just kind of small. All right, uh, now, so everything you're talking about is all like science and respectable and awesome understanding about the past. And Sarah asked, well, why the hell are you on our show? <laughs> yeah, what's yes. your dirty little secret here, David? Uh, my dirty little secret is the only reason I uh, you know, got into archaeology as all, at all is uh, when I was 18, uh, I read uh, Graham Hancock's Fingerprints of the Gods. Ah, that's uh, a great book. It really is. Oh, it, it was it was a gateway drug, you know. I, I <laughs> you know, I had a little bit of anthropology in high school, uh, and I picked that book up sort of the summer I was going to college, and I was going to college not knowing at all what I wanted to do with myself, uh, and I read that book, and I was hooked. You know, I thought it was amazing, and that you know, I, I started college. The, the the you know, Jeb will find this funny. I'm not sure if he knows. My first semester in college was as a business major. Uh, Jesus Christ! All respect to business majors. You know, my father was one. My dad. I my respect was them. One. I respect but, them, but they're not like. Yeah, that is definitely a different uh, tribe than myself. Yeah, not not where I should have been. Uh, but you know, this what uh, Hancock's book got you know that in the very next uh, that spring semester, my first spring semester, I started transitioning over, and I took a, an Egyptology class with Douglas Brewer. Uh, and a bunch of other uh, sort of intro to anthropology and archaeology classes. And I, I was still hooked and fascinated, but Graham Hancock's book was like just started to crumble as right. I started taking these classes. Like all of his arguments just started to just yeah. fall onto the floor in front of me. Uh, and and I you know quickly realized that it just didn't hold together as an argument very well. Uh, and so, you know, it, that, it kind of drifted away from, from me for a long time, especially as I said, we, you know, you go on to grad school and they, they drill you in and they want you to be a good, straightforward scientist as much as possible. And uh, I left this stuff uh, to a certain extent behind me. Uh, but as I started to transition around and to the other side of the classroom and start teaching, you know, as I spoke more and more with students, especially in those like 101 classes when, you know, students are just passing through and checking a box and don't know why they're in your class. What they do know is this stuff. They, they know the crazy stuff. They've heard Atlantis. They, they want to talk about that. They've heard about ancient aliens. They want to talk about that. They, they don't, they get really bored really fast when I start trying to explain, you know, pre-classic bias, socio-political organization. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and although we, we've talked about, we, we did an episode on, on the lost continent of Mu where, where we went to grad school has a big history with a lot of those things. And, you know, they don't talk about it, but much, but it, it's, it's there. Well, I think um, that's why you, Jeb, you in particular have seen a lot of this and you and I have talked about it a lot. There's, you know, the further back you go in mm -hmm. time, the more so-called professional archeologists were deeply involved in this stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the sort of the birth pangs uh, yeah. of of the profession. And the thing is, is I, and this is an argument I increasingly make. I really think it's not gone. Uh, and I, more importantly, you said people in intro, that idea very much informs what they think about what we do. Mm-hmm. And I think it has to be dealt with now. So you mentioned the, the pre-classic and, and these, these other things. And so you were interested because of where you had come from and reading Graham Hancock. But the thing that drew you back in as much as I generally like to get people in trouble was not me. Uh, it was something else. And it was a particular thing kind of with the time period you were interested in that sort of dragged you into like, I'm going to talk about these things again. Well, I, I think I know a little bit of what you're getting at. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, uh, certainly what I ended up writing about for our book, The Lost City's Mountain mm-hmm. Pyramid book, mm-hmm. and has been on my radar for a long time is the, uh, the alleged connection between the Olmec and uh, sort of Western Africa. Nice. Now, David, can you explain who the Olmec or the Olmec are exactly? We've mm-hmm. we've touched on them in the past, but we've never really yeah. focused on them real real well. And I and I don't think we're going to spend a massive amount of time on the Afrocentric yeah. thing because no, there's a whole episode. No, because we've talked about Afrocentrism, yeah. but we but yeah, haven't really you, talked about the Olmec. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and do that? Yeah, so the Olmec are you know often referred to as the first civilization in Mesoamerica. They lived along the the Gulf Coast uh, of uh, sort of you know southern Mexico, and uh, they are you know amazing. If you've seen anything, you have seen their colossal heads. Uh, they've carved these giant stone heads that were sort of effigy portraits of their rulers out of basalt. Uh, you know, the, the heads show up in pseudo-archaeological literature every once in a while as the, the classic trope of how on earth could someone have moved a, a rock that big? Uh, but they did it all the time and, and uh, whatnot. But the Olmec, you know, date to the middle pre-classic period. So they date to more or less the exact same time as I'm working in Yucatan. Uh, a little older, you know, the earliest uh, Olmec sites date back to they start getting big around 1000 BC. But they I have I have a question actually, weirdly enough. So, uh, and this might get a little more specialist, but I'll try not. So you're talking about the Gulf Coast, and the word Olmec, by the way, for our listeners, is a later Aztec word that means people of rubber, and it's right. basically referring to the later people there. Now, yeah. these big friggin' heads are sort of the way of showing power, as well as these the the altars. And again, we can talk about that if you want, but. The Maya equivalent of this in the highlands, in the southern highlands, like southern Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, et cetera, are the potbellies. Right. Is there anything like that in Yucatan? No. So is there any kind of like we made a big thing that makes it looks like a person or anything nope. else? Nope. Okay. You know, it's, it's really funny. Uh, working in middle pre-classic Yucatan is, is – um, I love it. I love the sites that I've worked at. There are very cool things going on there archaeologically, but they were aesthetically uh, limited group of people. Minimalist. Uh, minimalist. Minimalist. <laughs> they, they don't decorate their pottery. They don't seem to have decorated their buildings. They they weren't carving anything. Why do you they think were they were so? We have, why do you think they were so aesthetic? What? Why they lack it? Or yeah. Why? Why did they? Did they not develop it or did they choose not to use it? You know, there definitely there are good signs that Yucatan is interacting with the with the Gulf Coast. We definitely know they were interacting with the Olmec at this time. Uh, there seems to be trade going on throughout Mesoamerica. So they're interacting with other people who like art. Uh, you know, just I think you're just looking at cultural flavor text here. Yeah, you know, some people really get into artistic expression and others don't. And Yucatan, especially in the, the pre-classic, just doesn't really get into it. Not, you know, there are little things here and there, but they are just not an artistic group of people at that point in time. That's really interesting. It, it, it makes, uh, you know, uh, you were talking with Chris Begley. I was listening to Chris Begley thing and, and you know, uh-huh. certainly where he works in the Mosquitia, like, you know, they're famous for these, these you know, elaborate matates. You were talking oh, yeah. About. Super. We don't have any like that. We no, have really tall no. Yeah. And El Salvador, it's basically Highland Guatemala at that time. You know, so it's, you know, it's, it's the, it's the big pop bellies and things. So, so these, these heads, you, you wrote about it in, in your chapter in the, in the volume in Lost City Found Pyramid about how, yeah, there's this long history of people looking at them and going, oh, those look very stereotypically by like sort of racial conventions, African. Yeah. 
And the thing I found fascinating about your chapter is that you then kind of broke down the sort of historiography of this and looked at the the sources uh-huh. and how these sources, because the title of your chapter is, if I if I remember correctly, in fact, I'm not really remembering correctly, I'm flipping to it, uh, Black, Olmecs, and White Egyptians, how you, you literally found that the exact same late Victorian texts that were suffused with race, because late Victorian times were friggin' obsessed with race, uh-huh. um, are also used by people who try to argue race in Egypt, but in a, like, oh, the Egyptians are white. So, like, there's this whole... This stuff is used for multiple different conversations. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. No, and I, I think one of the points that I hope to get across with that chapter, and I think is a good discussion point here, is that that issue of race. Uh, you know, race is an incredibly important topic in the modern in modern America and in the modern world. But when you flip over to the academic world, uh, especially anthropology, we don't talk about race anymore. Uh, you know, because from our academic perspective, we figure this out that I mean, race biologically is, speaking, it's bullshit. Right. Race is culturally constructed, not biological. Now, what that, that means, hang that, on, that doesn't mean, hang on, hang on. David, can you say that again? Yeah. The, you know, the, the basic concept that is widely accepted in anthropology is that race is a culturally constructed concept, not fixed biology. Thank you. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't affect people's lives. No. It really does. It's goddamn important, but it's a biological lie. Right. It's yeah, a I mean, social reality. It's a life it, or death social reality, but it's a biological lie. And we've harped yeah, on that on the show before several times. I mean, we really try to drive that point home. However, ethnicity is more yes. what we like to say nowadays. Yeah. So, you know, and I think this is the problem that comes through with, with this topic is that, you know, the anthropologists, the archaeologists are having this sort of uh, nuanced discussion of what, you know, ethnic groups are moving around in different parts of the world in the ancient past and how horribly hard it is to discuss ethnicity through the archaeological record. You know, you look at a piece of pottery and say, wow, is this a Maya person or was this an Olmec person? I, I, it, all I know is I've got a piece of pottery in front of me. And so the discussions on ethnicity uh, in archaeological literature are complex. They're boring. They're dull. They don't really work. And they don't match the way people think of race in the modern world. No, they don't. And, and so they just ignore us and go back to Victorian bullshit. Right. And so you know, certainly you know, the, the root uh, of this chapter is looking at, you know, in particular, even Van Sertima's work, uh, who was in his 1970s was one of the big first popularizers of Afrocentrism and popularized the notion that the Olmec colossal heads, uh, to his perspective, looked African. Right. Uh, that you know, he, he said that his term, excuse me, let me be uh, specific. Uh, his term was they looked Negroid. Uh, which is essentially dark Again, an old term. Sub-Saharan yeah, Africa. it's 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 one of these old terms that you know, uh, like we've talked about the the moose stones on here, the Niven stones, and like going through that stuff and 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 original records, they would just throw these these terms around like that term and other terms constantly, and it's I think it's a little frankly surprising and shocking, and and as you said, from a from an academic perspective, we're like, oh, where am I even talking about that? But then we have to sort of deal with the fact that one, people in the past did, and two, people in the present today, outside of what we do, do. Well, and I, I mean, I, it's not been that long ago that those terms were used because I remember when I was taking my osteology class uh, in college, the terms well, were Caucasianoid, Negroid, and Mongoloid. Or, or, or go, I mean, yeah. they're not, and you're talking about an authoritative perspective, you go online and people. Oh, yeah. I'm not even talking about like how people abuse those terms. I mean, those yeah. were. That was the term that you used to determine like in a the race. Yeah. Oh, That's yeah. what you did. Oh. You were racing a skull, and you don't do oh, yeah. any of that. You don't do that anymore. Oh, no, they I mean, still I do, talk- actually. They well, do. yeah, but you don't they use do. those terms. No, the terms. Uh, they don't, but they use things that are more surprising. I mean, we we just we just purchased one of the the programs that allows you to do that with uh, craniometrics, and I'm gonna be interested to see what it uses to spit out. But yeah, no, I took osteology in, I want to say like 96 and yeah, 
yeah, it's, it's same sort of thing. And and then and you know, I those know that's were in use for a good long time. It's not until recently. Well, they dropped Mongoloid first, right? And then they've yeah. replaced the rest of them with um, African Africanized uh, features and um, European mm-hmm. instead of right. Caucasianoid. But that's exactly. It's almost. It's not quite find and replace. But mm-hmm. it's in the vein. And I know there's a debate in biological anthropology along those lines. See, now, the reason we bring this up is, is that so you got interested in looking at sort of the, the, the one of the ways that pseudoarchaeology kind of hits the specific place that you live, you know, pre-classic Mesoamerica. Now, what that sort of entailed then is you kind of had to go into the past of your own profession. I, I mean, one of the things that's both fascinating and almost obsessively infuriating about trying to deal with this stuff is that even though people believe these things today, I and mean, even though you can find people believe all these things today, to understand them, you have to go back. You have to go back to the past. You have to go back to sort of where things uh, come from. And so you've started doing a bit of that. Well, let's... No, no. Sorry, guys. Let's take a break real quick. And when we come back, we'll cover that topic. Yeah. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, and we are back, and we are still talking with David Anderson. And Jeb kindly suggested that we discuss something really interesting to me because I only recently became aware of it, and that's this Masonic hubbub that's been going around well, lately. And I, I directly blame America Unearthed for this because they've gone out of their way to dig this up. But tell me more. David's been David's been. Working. Working on, on on this angle because frankly, if you go into the esoteric before about 1930, you kind of inevitably. I mean, some of the stuff I was reading for the the Moo stuff, I was like, "This is Masonic. This is Masonic." And so David's been kind of once he realized that that was important to his understanding of the Olmec and the and the Egyptian and all these other things, not from a scientific perspective, but how people saw it and how they do see it today. He has been sort of doing archaeology of the sort of ideas about the past and he's been following this kind of masonic thread you've you've presented on this so what have Mm -hmm. you been finding well you know i I think the general context for me in this is that my approach to pseudo-archaeology at this point has been you know it's like people don't fall for this stuff you know just because they're not smart because they're not critical thinkers you know, I think more and more they, they are interested in these claims because it, it matches what they expect the past to look like. And I think that is from these broader societal influences. Like deeper cultural these, traditions. Deeper cultural traditions that have influenced the way we view the world. And the Masons have been an interesting struggle for me. Like this is still something I'm trying to learn a lot about. Um, and it's really funny uh, you know, when I first, a couple of years ago, started trying to learn more about the Masons, like, you know, I'm an academic. What do I do? I go looking for books. Uh, and it's funny because even the really serious good books about Masons are, you know, have, carry names like, you know, the the secret mysteries of, of the hidden Masonic cult. <laughs> you that know, they, seems a good thing to me. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's really hard to tell the difference between a good book about the Masons and a, no, I, and a book about the Masons that's you know, just sort of totally off on conspiracy theories. And the more I got to know about this, it was really sort of interesting because Masons themselves seem to take a great delight in not having absolute knowledge of their own order's history. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, there's uh, uh, you know some fixed points in history when the uh, uh, in the 1700s when the, the Great Lodge was founded in London and the mm-hmm. official Freemasons were founded. 
and you have litanies of papers that come out of you know, from lodges from then on out about meetings and everything else that they hold. A historical record. A historical record, and they love their historical record as much as it's also sort of quasi-secret and membership isn't officially admitted and whatnot. Um, but everything before that, everything before the official founding of the Lodge in London is legendary. And, you know, when I was first trying to learn about the Masons, I missed the point. Uh, you know, I kept saying, okay, well, what's the real history? Which, you know, what's the real background of this organization before it came out in the public eye? We, and, we're archaeologists. We deal with the material world. That's our immediate go-to. And I will say it is it is hard to get over. But yeah. once you do, you kind of do go through, you know, you are through the looking glass. Yeah. I, I, I kind of see what David's saying here, though. Yeah. Yeah, no, no yeah, I agree. It, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing is what I'm saying. Yeah, and it's fantastic because you'll you'll pick up a good Masonic history book, and they will offer four, five, six different origins uh, yeah. for how the the order came together, and that's deliberate. They want it that yeah. way. If I have to have a past, I prefer it to be multiple choice, and we'll yeah, let, and, our, and I'll, I'll let our fans catch catch that one. And it's a really interesting influence on you know is the Masons. You know, I. I, I Conspiracy theories or not, you just have to play it out. Admit they have been, they have had lots of wealthy members who have been influential members of American society. And we have numerous presidents who are officially, you know, outed as Masons. Uh, lots of wealthy businessmen. These are people who have had a huge influence on our own society, and that trickles down. With, you know, not to get too uh, Reaganomics on us here, uh, but those big cultural uh, figures have an effect on the way we view the world. And the Masons, you can hardly go into, you know, my little town of Roanoke here has multiple Masonic lodges. Uh, you can hardly go into a town that doesn't have a Mason's lodge these days in the United States. Don't and say so, anything that's going to get you killed, David. Just, just, Oh no, I'm trying point. not to. I love the Masons. In fact, I'm, I'd really like to join, but they won't let me because I, I, am an atheist. I, I apologize. Uh, but they won't, they're, they're very open-minded on religion in most respects. Uh, they do not ask that you uh, have a particular faith, but they ask that you have faith. Uh, and so I've had many good uh, conversations with uh, a friend of mine who is a Mason, uh, and he's he's tempted to let me slide in anyway. But uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't think it's it's right because uh, I, I don't have that kind of religious faith. I, I actually know a couple friends who are Masons and are also atheists, and it's uh, the workaround that they have is actually it's very doable and it does fit within their framework very well or else they wouldn't have done it. So I think if that's what's holding, I mean, here I'm being an advocate for joining the Masons because I think it's cool. <laughs> I would love to be a Mason, but there's only a few yeah. lodges that'll even accept women. So, and none of them right. are near me. <laughs> yeah. It was suggested to me by my insider that, you know, when I was asked to, if I believed in a higher power, I could whisper my wife under my uh, breath if I liked I think that's how they worked around it. And I think one of them actually is a uh, Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster guy. So uh, there you go. There you go. So you, Does, do, uh, you can get around it. I'm just saying. Yeah. I don't so, know. I don't know if Cthulhu would <laughs> would count given that I it is. I bet you money that there's got to be at least one Mason who has. Yeah, but, they, but it's technically. Invoked yeah, but it's technically lower. I mean, it's at least <laughs> five to 6,000 meters below the surface of the Pacific. So I don't think that counts. So it's now, but why, why is. Greater power, not higher or lower. Oh. Uh, Just a power bigger than. A power more powerful than you. Well, that would also be my chair. But. <laughs> um, which I wish I would list. Uh, so how does this tie in the pseudo-archaeology? How does the Masonic stuff yeah, tie so, in? I'm not saying it does, but how does it? This certainly is, is they lay a foundwork, uh, groundwork, excuse me, for an understanding of the ancient world as mysterious. You, you know, the, the Masons themselves who are so prevalent throughout the United States, uh, they themselves embrace the notion that our knowledge of the past is flexible and different and changing. Uh, and that lays a groundwork for a notion that our understanding of the past elsewhere should be uh, flexible and not fixed. And archaeologists come along and say it's this way, X, Y, and Z. We found it, done, we're, we're good. Uh, and that doesn't jive well with the way the general public wants to view the past. And this gets a little, you know, I drift over into a little bit of some of the territory that, that Jeb has been working on, I know, in his own work. 
where we start to, in the early days of archaeology, we have some archaeologists, some people stepping out and doing archaeological work, or at least writing about it, uh, and who are also Masons, or who might be Masons, or are dragging in that legendary past. And the, the most famous uh, for me, and where I you know, want to start with this in my own work, uh, is good old Ignatius Donnelly himself. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's not unsurprising. Now, for, for our for our listeners, uh, Ken and Sarah have done an entire episode on Atlantis. And we have talked Donnelly, about Donnelly so much. Yeah, Don, Donnelly has done a number of different things, but he's most famous for creating sort of, in, in his book Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, the, the sort of modern concept of a hyper-diffusionary Atlantis. And there's tons of masonry in there, and having read a number of other things to sort of follow on, there is as well. Now, now, David, you mentioned the 18th century a lot. Is that when a lot of this Masonic stuff gets kind of laid down? Uh, the order itself was founded in the 18th century, but I think it's more of a 19th, especially in the United States, it's more of a 19th century phenomenon. Okay, so the reason the reason I ask, and this gets back to your Egypt stuff and other things, is – that seems to jibe really well. So the 18th century, and this gets into you know Durkheim with with social structure and and, and things. There's a lot of a lot of importance as as there starts to be cracks in the facade of the church as a major kind of social organization in Europe and, and America in the 18th century as the Enlightenment begins to take hold. Uh, these these social groups, and they later become things like the Elks Club. But the Masons are, are an early version of that, and I think that's why they're really important. This is happening at the same time that there is this belief, and this can get back to in your chapter, that Egypt is kind of the heart of civilization, and that hieroglyphs are quite literally sacred signs, and there is this kind of fetishization of ideas of the classical world, and that's very much what the Greeks thought. Is, yes. is, that, is that tying into what you're working with? Yes, absolutely. Because, and you know, broadly speaking, this nebulous, legendary past that the Masons embrace suggests that you know the order can trace itself back to the Middle East, uh, back to ancient Greece, back to the Middle East, and back to Egypt. And they love that you know, the, the, the word fetishization, uh, which I can pronounce very well. Thank you. Uh, is perfect. It was, uh, the, the Masons are in love with sort of classical symbolism and even more so this Egyptian symbolism. And they, they incorporate all of these symbols into their practices as Masons. Yeah. Uh, and you know, again, there's sort of disputes over what the Masons think any of these symbols actually mean uh, and you know, how much their meanings match the ancient meanings and whatnot. But regardless, they love this ancient symbolism. And, and what Donnelly does, Ignatius Donnelly does in particular with his book uh, on Atlantis is he takes this Masonic legendary past uh, that you know, traces to ancient Greece and then to ancient Egypt, and he takes it one step further. Instead of saying it came from ancient Egypt, uh, Donnelly literally says Masonic yeah. practices came from Atlantis. And then yeah, it's, it's, it's to Egypt, to Greece, to Europe. It's like finding sort of the ultimate, and, I, and I've written about it this way, the ultimate form of kind of like proto-history. Like what's the oldest you can trace back the idea, even if it's not what we would consider real, uh, yeah. of, of a historical record. So what you're saying, it sounds like, is that a lot of these ideas about the past are not representations of the past of, say, 5000 BCE, their representations of 1750 to 1880 CE. Right. Yeah. It's like our, our view of what the past should look like is constructed in the present. Yeah. And but in, or, or in the very recent, almost the present. recent present, certainly. I, I think yeah. that's a very profound statement that you just made there. I, I like this, the concept being brought up that the, this is what they expected the past to look like. Therefore they made their history mm -hmm. look like that. Um, I think that's a really important point for people to take away uh, from this particular interview because I think that that statement kind of encapsulates why so much of the fringe gets stuck on the the weird i the, the seemingly weird ideas that they get stuck on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. Now do. 
is there a time when these ideas, I mean, these ideas are still in like sort of the basic Masonic history. Is there a time that they generally start to go, well, these are in our past, but we don't really care about them as much. Like, is there sort of almost like a, a secularization or, or, or almost a reforming or are these still quite active, these ideas in like sort of Masonic like charter myths? Uh, they are withdrawn from, they seem to be, the best of my understanding, most Masons don't engage with these ideas in the ways that, that they were engaged with in the 19th century. You know, Donnelly is far from alone in the 19th century. We have Augustus Le Planchon, uh, we have Manley P. Hall writing in the early 20th century. We have several people who are Masons in the late 19th century, early 20th century, who directly engage with what I today would call pseudo-archaeology. Let's Which, talk. Let's talk about those two. I mean, so Le Plongeon, we've talked about previously in the episode where I was a guest on the Moose Stones because the Le Plongeons are heavily involved in sort of the legend or the myth of Moo, if you want to put it that way. Uh, we have not talked about Manly P. Hall. Can you talk about either of those? Yeah, I, you know, I like Le Plongeon for the the basic point that you know, Donald and they worked said, in the same region where you worked. Yeah, well, and you know, Le Plongeon is you know has his mark in uh, what you know, for better lack of a better term, legitimate archaeology, and then he found the first Chakmul statue. If you're familiar with the Chakmuls at, at, at Chichen Itza, Chichen Itza, that you know, the many that the were carved there of a man sort of doing a sit up, a, re a uh, reclining and then, figure, and they're also found in Tula and then up uh, in the Aztec capital as well. Um, the, uh, so he found the very first one, and he named it Chalk Mool. There's, um, there's one at Tazamal, by the way. Okay, excellent. Um, the um, but Le Pont Jean, you know, it, Donnelly says, okay, you know, Masonic, Masonic practices began in Atlantis. Le Pont Jean says, oh no, 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 Masonic practices began in Mu, and then you know, as Mu fell, uh, what, what is it? A princess, a queen? I, you know, I have to read. Pre -read my well, well, it's Jean. Princess Mu. It's Princess Mu. Princess Mu. Yeah, the, the word Mu comes from uh, Brasser de Bourbourg re reading badly the Dresden Codex, mm -hmm. and then right. Le Plongeon creates Prince Co. and Princess Mu, and they are the re uh, Alice and Augustus are the are the reincarnations of them. Nice. Well, of course and they I, are. According to Le Plongeon, Princess Mu what flees the destruction of Mu, yeah. carrying with her these Masonic practices yeah. or, Bill, or builds the Sphinx and becomes Isis, the goddess. Oh, you're skipping. You're, you're going too fast. Well, yeah, I do. Okay, so what she happens after she leaves Mu? The Maya world, where she stays at Chichen Itza. Oh yes, and yes. And then is chased out of there and goes to Atlantis. And then when Atlantis falls, she goes to Egypt. That is correct. Now that what, is correct. What's chasing her, just out of curiosity? Oh, fate. Yeah, she she is ill-fated essentially in all yeah, of this. Yeah, and and there's like enemies, and and so like Mu starts as this sort of name for this, and is so she, I mean, is she considered to be immortal? Uh, this all, you know, uh, this all happens pretty quickly, as I recall. Yeah, <laughs> poor woman. You, you get, the thing you got to remember, and we talked about this a little, but like a bunch of the Maya archaeologists in the late 19th century believed in this stuff. Like Edward Thompson and Sylvanus Morley, they're writing papers about Atlantis. And so it's not that far off what the Plongeon's actually doing. All right. Now, uh, who, now who is the last guy? Uh, uh, which one? Hall is an Hall, yes. transferal figure. You know, well, Paul Jean is great because he actually did out, went out and dug stuff up and he was you know, deliberately – and we know he was a mason – and he was adding to that sort of Masonic lore. Manly P. Hall is someone who comes along uh, and bursts on to more of the esoteric scene. And like uh, in the 30s and 40s, is that correct? Or is he that comes, his book uh, is published in the 20s. Okay, uh, right? okay. Uh, the Secret Teaching of All Ages. Ah, yes. Uh, he, uh, this is a book that um, he is a Scottish Mason and he reaches sort of the upper levels of Masonic lore. Uh, and uh, he is attempting in the secret teachings of all ages to trace the origins of Masonic practices, or, or that's one of the big uh, things. And, and he very much interla interlaces and overlaps these ideas with other esoteric religious beliefs. And uh, the secret teaching of all ages is one of these massive tomes of a book. Uh, and he just tries to cough up everything he's read in the library about the ancient world 
and to pull all these sort of what he perceives to be threads of similarity from different groups throughout the world. And, and he works under a fundamental principle that if there are similarities in ancient groups, it must be because of a shared diffusionism. Well, that of it course. All must have sort of this original source to it. Uh, and he interweaves this narrative with you know, saying this is related to Mason, saying this is related to an esoteric truth, uh, and, and argues, you know, ultimately that this it can still be found in the world today through sort of living uh, esoteric religious groups and through living Masonic practices. But, you know, this involves a lot of things, like he spends a lot of time talking about Atlantis. Oh, yeah. uh, and, you know, from that archaeological perspective, it's, it's pretty easy to say, physically speaking, that Atlantis didn't exist. Uh, and he spends a lot of time arguing that the, the Great Pyramids are thousands of years older than, the, than we know they are. Uh, and so there's a lot of bones to pick in, in this book, sort of showing where things weren't really, I would say, weren't what he thought they were. Now, he, 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 you're mentioning a book, and you said that's in the 20s. He did a lot of radio presentations, right? Oh, yes, and, and he founded his own institute, and he wrote many more books, and he gave lectures all over, and he was giving lectures until he passed away. Just, uh, you know, I, I, when I was at the Theosophical Society uh, earlier this summer, he came up a lot. Uh, and uh, he uh, was giving lectures right up until the time he died uh, about 10, 15 years ago. Um, oh, really? That late? Because I've heard a bunch of them on YouTube. Like there are – if you go to YouTube, you find a lot of Manly P. Hall lectures. And that's why I was asking. And he is a highly beloved uh, figure in the modern esoteric religion. Yeah, world. no, I've, I've run into that as well. Is he – does that make him – is he a contemporary of Edgar Cayce? Because it sounds a hell of a lot like Edgar Cayce. Yes, he is 100% a contemporary. I, and so it's, it's very similar. I, I don't think there's I'm, – I'm not familiar with overlap in their work. I'm not sure if they interacted, but they are absolutely writing and working at the same time well, like, and speaking to similar audiences. Similar audiences, Atlantis, Egypt being older because a lot of the people that like want to make Egypt – like the Plateau of Giza older are, are also working with Casey. All right. Now you mentioned – the Theosophical Meetings. I think we're going to go to break right now, but when you come back, this has all been nice and theoretical, but you took this out into the field and you did a little bit of ethnography. So we'll talk about that when we come back <laughs> yes. from break. Professional Certifications for Scientists, or PCS, aims to provide practical educational videos, field guides, knowledge tests, professional certifications, and deployment connections to professional scientists everywhere. Check out the videos page for high-quality training videos on a variety of topics. Find PCS videos at www.pcscourses.com forward slash videos. PCS, a place for good scientists to become great science professionals. Hi, everyone, and we are back. And David, you were telling us about a Theosophy Society meeting that you went to earlier this year? Yes, so the, uh, the, the archaeological research I did this summer <laughs> was to go to the Theosophical Society of America's annual conference at their uh, sort of main facility in Wheaton, Illinois, so the, the good suburbs of Chicago. Um, now, can you tell this, us who they yeah, are? What's, what's, the what's the significance what the of it all? <laughs> All right, so the, the group themselves, this is a, an esoterical spiritual group that was founded in the 1870s uh, by a woman named Helena Blavatsky. Uh, and Blavatsky is a, an amazing character. You know, in fact, the theme of the, of the conference this, semester, this summer uh, was about uh, Blavatsky herself. And so you know, most the, it was a very academic style conference. Uh, the, the speakers were all mostly speaking to sort of who she was and, and what she did. And, uh, you know, essentially she was a, a woman of Russian descent. Uh, she was married, uh, or excuse me, before she gets married, uh, she was, you know, born into a family of relative, you know, as, as I understand it, you know, it's nobility, but sort of at the fringes of nobility. You got money, but you're not going to inherit anything, essentially. Uh and uh, she was married as a relatively young woman uh, at 18 uh, to an older, you know, uh, other noble figure who she really didn't want to be married to whatsoever. And so, you know, apparently she just sort of lit out and uh, left him very quickly 
uh, found herself in uh, Istanbul or Constantinople or whatever it was at the time, uh, and just never looked back and sort of traveled the world and particularly went out uh, to the east and eventually made her way uh, to the America uh, to the Americas to North America in particular. Yeah, she, goes, she goes to London for a bit, but then a lot of the stuff she does is in New York after and this gets sketchy as to what exactly she did in India, <clears throat> but after some time in India. Yeah, and it's in London that she uh, says that she met the one of the Mahatmas, or she, you know, she, no, that she saw him, but only you know began to correspond with them later and didn't realize who he was at the time. And uh, essentially, this is a woman in in eighteen seventy. She found, or not in the eighteen seventies, she founds the Theosophical Society, uh, and the the group is you know it's a group that is. Dedicated to studying esoteric spiritual traditions from around the world, yeah. uh, and in a in a broad sense, you know, they, this is a, a group that defines itself as not being a religion, uh, but is very interested in what other religions have seen and said and done. And you know, I think broadly speaking, they feel that most religions have seen aspects of uh, the truth, but have not sort of fully grasped. Uh, the the entirety of that truth and yeah the the, the way I explain it in class is <clears throat> this is kind of growing up alongside anthropology in the late nineteenth century and a lot of early yeah. anthropologists were theosophists including the first director of the Middle American Research Institute uh, <clears throat> and anthropologists were interested in a comparative study of religion from a scientific perspective theosophists were very interested in a comparative study of religion to create a new way of thinking yes is the, the you know Basically, for them, they're looking for, much like Manly P. Hall was looking for you know, any similarities he saw between cultures must have sort of a common root. The Theosophical Society, in a lot of ways, like many people, you know, the, the Theosophical Society becomes in some ways a root uh, to the coming uh, development of New Age spiritualism. Yeah, I would call it Victorian New Age. Yeah, I mean, it predates sort of the origins of that term. Uh, but, um, you know, and, and there's a, a desire here to discover universal religion, discover sort of a universal truth. And the Theosophical Society becomes extremely interested in the ancient world, uh, Egypt, uh, of course, and certainly the, there are discussions of Atlantis that come into play here as well. I mean, the Blavatsky's first book is Isis Unveiled, again, the yes. goddess of magic in Egypt. Yes. And there's a, a thought process here that essentially, if you can get back to more ancient religions, that they will be purer, that they will be closer to that truth, to that original universal religion before it had been sort of corrupted. And so they began to borrow from a lot of religious traditions around the world, looking for that universal religion, looking for that universal truth, essentially. Now, this doesn't, uh, but, this doesn't sound that bad, though. No, and, and you know it was a wonderful experience going and working with these people. But it, it's one of these things, and this is where you know, as I said, my desire here is to not you know to not walk onto the pseudo archaeological stage and say you know everyone who likes ancient aliens is an idiot because they you know they don't debunk this stuff. You know, my desire is to come onto this stage and say why do we expect? Why do people so readily expect the ancient world to look like this? And I think the Theosophical Society is a root movement here to looking at the ancient world as profoundly mystical, as profoundly esoteric, as profoundly spiritual and profoundly powerful. And this doubles down, I think, on that legendary aspect of, uh, that we see in the Masons. Uh, and it introduces a notion, you know, I, I think the average American has not heard of the Theosophical Society. But I would strongly argue that they have been influenced by it. They've uh, heard you know, its products. They've heard its yeah, products. Doc, I mean, we, Dr. we've – go ahead. Uh, the, uh, the, the big question I have actually right now that I need to do more research on is a good old Mr. Stan Lee uh, and exactly where Stan Lee got all of his ideas it's from. Not, it's not Stan Lee. It's Jack Kirby. Oh, okay, stop. Well, we'll you really are that. talking about comic people. Yeah. We're talking about comic people now. Okay. What yeah. is Stan – okay. No, wait. What – what is Stan Lee's connection to the Theosophy Society? Let, let me just make this very simple. This coming November, you know, if you go and watch the Doctor Strange movie when it comes out, oh yeah, that is a fictionalized version of that's the Ditko. Theosophy Society. That's also that's also Ditko. Yeah, 
That's a that's uh-huh. a that's a fictionalized intera- fictionalized theosophy society. Just about. It, it is. Ex- there are extraordinary overlaps in terms. The of idea of a Westerner going to the East and learning all their secrets in order to bend reality—that's yeah. straight up. Yeah, but he's he's learning it from a white Celtic woman. Well, well that's we're that's past being the, made today. <laughs> But exactly. This impacts the Oscars so white controversy. Right. And, and, and that's why. Because traditionally that character is not white. And that traditionally that character is the unscrutable Orient. But no, that Jack Kirby, and I know you taught, and so now we're going to get behind. We're just going to go fast now. Uh, you taught out a creep ball in, your, yeah. in, in one of your classes recently. And he's all about Jack Kirby. And he's not wrong in that sense, who was just dipping left and right and taking – and created so many of the things like Dark Side and all these characters we see in uh, comics today was reading Von Daniken, was reading Morning of the Magicians, was reading the theosophy stuff and and turning it into comic books. Absolutely. Well, it seems like fertile ground, so why wouldn't you? Well, Lovecraft, who we're going to talk about in the near future, did the exact same thing. He openly calls out the theosophists. He basically says in The Call of Cthulhu, the theosophists are almost right, but they're really optimistic. Uh-huh. He literally says that. That's not a joke. So, David, and, you, you – I'm oh, sorry, Jim. No, that's it. David, you've taught theosophy and comic books? Uh, to a certain extent. <laughs> uh I have been. I started last semester, and I will be teaching again this semester a class called Paranormal America. Ooh, I like it. That, uh, yeah, it, uh, it's a, a class at Roanoke College in there uh, from the sociology department, uh, and you know, broadly speaking, it is a, an overview of what the state of paranormal belief in modern America is. Yeah, it's kind of it's, it's a lot of the stuff we talk about on here. And, and he's been reading books by, I can't remember Creepall's first name, but who's written a lot about sort of pop culture and media and deeper stuff and yeah. magic. And and, I, and he's written about Jack Kirby, who was a major creator for comics in the 1960s and 70s and was deeply dipping into this well. Yeah, okay, so- we, we, we actually used Creepall's book, Authors of the Impossible, uh, yes. which is a, a great book to read. I would highly recommend it if you're interested in the paranormal world. Uh, it is not an easy read. It is extraordinarily dense, and uh, it was a bit much for some of the students, and so I had to drop it for this semester. But it is a great book. Uh, it is uh, profoundly thought-provoking for me uh, and uh, a little disturbing at moments too, but uh, a fun uh, way to sort of approach these things. So, David, let's bring things back around to the Theosophy Society meeting that you went to. Um, can you share a couple stories of what you encountered when you got there and how that met or did not meet your expectations? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was funny. I, I was asked this question a lot while I was there, actually, sort of the expectations question. And, you know, to be honest, I didn't know what to expect really walking in. And, uh, and so, uh, it, it was a, an interesting experience. It was, um, people there are extraordinarily nice. I was very well welcomed there. And, you know, what I walked in and said to them, uh, you know, when anyone asked why I was there, I, I was you know, always trying to be very open and honest. And I think, and one of the reasons I'm very happy to do this show too, I, you know, I think, and what I told them and what I tell other people too, I think our discipline, I think the discipline of archaeology, that archaeologists tend to be very bad about talking to the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like I, I think I said towards the beginning of this interview, you know, it's, Students get really bored when I want to talk about, you know, pre-classic Maya socio-political organization. And we have this tendency as professionals to, when someone asks us, oh, what's, you know, what's amazing about archaeology? Why, you know, what are you studying? Oh, it's so amazing. It's so cool that you do archaeology. I say, yes, yes, it is. Let me tell you about the state of political organization at Shkobo in pre-classic Maya at 500 BC. Let's start talking about irrigation. like wait, no, what, I thought the, the ancient past was powerful and amazing and legendary and mystical. And I'm like, no, we have pottery. <laughs> we have pottery. <laughs> and so, you know, when I was there, what, you know, what I would say to people is that, you know, look, I, I think archaeologists are very bad at talking to a general public about, uh, about archaeology. And the reason I went and, and the Theosophical Society is, you know, very absolutely, it is a group that is extraordinarily interested in the ancient world. 
And I, as an archaeologist, want to be able to be better at talking to groups of people like them, too. And to be able, you know, ultimately, I think the, the highest goal that we can have at this point you know, as archaeologists is to protect archaeological heritage, to make people aware that this stuff is important, uh, that it shouldn't be bulldozed over or tossed aside, that if you see an arrowhead in the field, that maybe it's not a good idea to just pick it up and bring it home, that maybe there's a good idea to tell somebody about it instead. Take a picture. Uh, yeah, take a picture and explain you know, and, and get people involved who can understand the context and how important that context is. And so this is, you know, the general public views archaeology, I would say, in a very different way than we do. And so this is, you know, going to the Theosophical Society was a big part of, of how I want to try and understand that perspective better so that we can be better at that our heritage preservation aspect. Now, they're very interested in the past, but are they interested in anything that you or us have to say? Yes, absolutely. You know, everyone that I spoke to while I was there, you know, instantly wanted to know about things that I do. Uh, and the things that archaeologists do are eagerly consumed by popular audiences. We just don't really reach out to them all that often. So it takes a dedicated version of those audiences uh, to find it. And so you know, I, I, this is perhaps not entirely the answer to the question you're asking, but uh, I can't help but remember there was a man who uh, was at this, the conference this summer. Whenever I got to talk to him, I kept trying to get over to talk to him and didn't quite get there. Uh, but um, every day he was wearing a tie that had uh, an, an Egyptology scene on it. <laughs> oh, how cool. Uh, they were uh, New Kingdom tomb paintings, essentially, oh, how cool. uh, on his ties. Uh, so, you know, these, these are folks who are extraordinarily interested in, you know, what's going on in archaeological studies, but they interpret it in a very different way than we do, and uh, because they're coming at it from a very different perspective than we are. Now, this, uh, this doesn't sound particularly fringy to me, though. It's not like, uh, not like tales I've heard of UFO uh, conventions or... Um, the creationist conventions I've been to, which uh, friendly people all around, but um, there was a conflict of realities mm -hmm. at both of those. Did you have a similar experience here? There, there is a, a, a general thread. I mean, it's it, uh, surrounding particularly the theme of Atlantis. Gotcha. Uh, uh, because for Blavatsky, the founder of this organization in her book, uh, uh, the Secret Doctrine in particular, she elaborates on how uh, humanity has gone through what she calls uh, different races. Yeah, root uh, races. Root races. And we are the fifth root race of humanity. Uh, and this is more like stages uh, than what we would think of as the modern concept of race that we were talking about earlier. And so we are the fifth race uh, of humanity. Uh, and the fourth race uh, occurred in Atlantis. And there was also Lemuria, so this whole other sunken, sunken continent, because it's the geology of the late 19th century. Gotcha. Yeah. So they're treating but, Lemuria um, and Atlantis as if they're two different places. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this, this is um, – so the, the idea and the notion of Atlantis is, very, is profoundly influential and a big part of what they talk about. And it came up repeatedly while I was there, and I had many interesting conversations, and I would say – Opinions within the society vary. I talked to some people who were very committed to the notion of a physical, real Atlantis. Uh, one of the speakers who prevent, uh, presented, and some of the folks I talked to as well, was less interested in whether Atlantis was a physical place uh, and was more interested in it as a mythological place. Uh, that and, and he meant that in a way that, um, in a way that myth can be more powerful than reality. Uh, yeah, in, in sort of a metaphorical, but not necessarily purely metaphorical sense. Yeah, yeah. And so you know, the opinions on Atlantis vary greatly there, uh, but it is something that's you know, extremely important to them. Uh, and so, and, and I, you know, uh, there's some popularity. This is a group that, so the, the, the core doctrine, no, is not sort of this massively fringe oh my God, they're spouting sort of crazy things. No, like a lot of things that, you know, almost everything people are saying there, I think is great. You know, I have no particular problem with. Um, but uh, but there's, you know, there's so many sort of interesting overlaps. You know, I had some conversations about uh, Osmanovich's ideas uh, about the Bosnian pyramid, 
Uh, this is a group which we've also had a show on. Yes. Yeah. This is a group that wants a spiritual, mystical, strange, ancient world. Yeah. And so they are interested in uh, when other people propose those ideas. And 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 I've I've talked about this a little on the show, and I think we're going to talk about it again in the future. That honestly, I think that's how a lot of people see the past. Yeah. And I think that is possibly one of the biggest hurdles for professional archaeologists to get over is that that is how people see the past. And you know what? We can actually be scientific and talk about it in that way, but that's not easy. And, and that's not something we're going to to unpick here. So you went to the theosophical meetings and you, you had some good relations and you got some sort of different perspectives and all that. Um, are you are you kind of working this up in, into into other material? I mean, this this sounds like you're, this is something that is a a work in progress. Yeah, this is a, a work in progress for me, and I'm currently starting to work on a book manuscript, sort of tying all of this together. Broadly speaking, looking at how the public perception of the ancient world or the public perception of archaeology has been constructed over the years, that you know. Again, why do the students walk into our classes and you know want to talk about uh, these weird things and don't you know and, and expect the ancient world to look this way? And so that that's the the overarching project here is I'm starting to work on this book. We uh, hopefully it'll be called Weirding Archaeology uh, if I get my way uh, and looking at how this story of the public perception of archaeology has been built. I like it. Yeah. I should no. give props and credit here because I, I, I love this use of the term weirding, and I'm actually borrowing it from a, a book called Weirding the War, uh, which is about the Civil War. Uh, strange enough place for me to draw my influences from. But if you're looking for Civil War books uh, as well, Weirding the War uh, is a fantastic edited volume about how, you know what, actually the Civil War really kind of sucked. Yeah, you know, uh, there were some horrible things going on, and maybe we shouldn't glorify it quite so much. I, I thought you were going straight up uh, uh, Frank Herbert's Dune. Oh, oh no, no, no! I, I'm one? thinking about you know incorporating that as a the weirding word as something else for the end, maybe. But. Oh, that! I, oh my! The animated version of your book. I, 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 I don't even know what that's going to look like. Actually, I, I can now instantly recognize what that's going to look like. Um, so I like that we've what, already animated your book that hasn't been written yet. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, have, I have an artist picked out to commission the cover, but I'm not sure if she's oh, going to play. <laughs> there you go. There you go. No, and I, I mean, obviously, I, I've, I've been recently working on this whole spooky archaeology thing, and I, I have something that's that's under review right now for that. And, and I think that's a major part of our, of our past because I, I really do think that people see antiquity and that concept of antiquity in this sense. Now, uh, you're teaching about this. And um, you're going to be talking about this in the future. Do you see you're going to be doing more ethnography, or or what? What are some of sort of the the research avenues you see going here as you kind of like work on this project? Uh, I need to you know continue to work on writing up uh, what I dealt with this summer. But yeah, right now this is more of you know an ethnographic style project yeah. than an excavation project. I mean, I yeah. want to talk to people about how they view the ancient world. I've, I've got an interview lined up with uh, this artist named Starroot, uh, yeah. who incorporates UFOs and Maya symbols into her art. Oh, shit. So, that's, 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 you, you, you just tripped about five different trips for me. So <laughs> now, if you could excavate Atlantis, that would be absolutely fantastic. And oh, yeah, I'm signing up for that. Out. Yeah. But, David, I think this has been fantastic. Uh, and you're, you're hitting some things. I, I don't know if there's been a really good accounting of sort of Masonic influences on pseudo-archaeology, and I would love to see that sort of explicated further. So as this research goes, I think we should definitely have you back. Definitely, and, yes. And, and again, the sort of the, the, the bits on Olmec in Egypt, which ties into this hermetic stuff and ties into this Masonic stuff, can be found. And I, I don't want to promote this too much because I'm terrible at it. But our, our Lost City Found Pyramid that you co-edited with me. Mm -hmm. uh, so thank you very much for, for talking about this stuff. Thank you guys for having me on. It's been a pleasure. No problem. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jeb. All right. We'll we'll talk to you all about something weird next time. Trials as one will call. No we don't do a dinosaur. 
Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.